Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby, and today we look at migration and full employment. Can we have both, or do migrants really take our jobs, or is there perhaps a tipping point when there's just too many migrants for the economy to cope with? And if so, what's determining that tipping point, or is it something we shouldn't worry about, and are there bigger fish to fry when it comes to the number of people on the planet? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Well, of course, migration is a hot topic around the world, and it's helped see the rise of an anti-migration rhetoric led by organizations like UKIP, of course, and uh, also the President of the United States, who ironically is married to a migrant and employs lots of them in his hotels, possibly because they work for less. So are they taking our jobs? Well, Steve, uh, what is the relationship between employment and migration? I mean, a lot of people assume people from overseas do take jobs that local people could have done. Uh, but there's also the economic argument, isn't it, that uh, those people create demand, they buy stuff, and therefore they produce more jobs. So who is right on this? Well, I'm, I'm actually I'm, I'm a bit rather torn on this. I, I, I think it comes down to the quality of what uh, migration brings to your country rather than the, the quantity and the cost of the labour. And most of the focus of the debate is on, uh, you know, whether you're going to reduce wages or whether it's going to add more demand than it, than it takes, takes away. And fundamentally, on the, on the macro uh, numbers... It's it's a it's a line ball argument from what I've seen most of the time. It's, um, you know they 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 uh, they might they do in fact reduce wages in some cases, but not by very much. Mm. They increase demand when they get jobs, so one one tends to counterbalance the other. But I um, the, the thing you're which saying, I you're sitting on the fence on this, Steve. I am uh, because I I would not want to imagine Australia without the immigration waves that came through in the seventies and eighties. For sure, yeah, and yeah. Dramatic transformation of the culture, taking from you know a boring spam culture, UK with spam plus a bit of sunshine added, um, to a very vibrant multicultural. So the change in the character of the society, I think, was fantastic, and. Um, you know, as I said, I'd, it would be a dreadfully boring place if it was still like it was back in the 50s and 60s. Um, but on the other side, you can uh, migration. Uh, there's actually an interesting history in terms of how people react to new waves of migration because you, you just take a class analysis basis to it. Capitalists are very happy to bring in uh, labour from overseas because they expect them to do exactly what you're talking about. They will be working extremely hard to establish themselves. They'll take jobs that the locals would uh, either put their noses up at or demand higher pay rate. And uh, But it tends not to lead to protests from the local workers unless there's high unemployment to begin with. Yeah. And... Um, which one is, of the most, but it's interesting because we don't have that problem right now, and yet we have all this yes, we anti, do, anti-migration. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, in certain sections of the community, and maybe that's the maybe because because I'm always confused by the argument. You know, they they take our jobs and they're taking our welfare payments. Now, which one is it? Because unless they're exactly, defaulting exactly. the doll, they can't be doing both of them. But You're maybe a fully employed welfare earning um, migrant. 
<laughs> yeah, well, and so it's, and I think it is that I think most of them are working rather than uh, claiming welfare and then shipping that money back overseas, which is the other thing that apparently they they mm. do a, do a lot of. But it's, it's, but I think it is. It's certain sections of the community, isn't it, that are they're impacted more than others. Well, it tends to be um, that the the previous wave of migrants are the ones who are most angry about the next wave of migrants. Mm. There's a beautiful yeah. historical study which I read back way back in the seventies in Australia. Because that's what, of course, clearly the society built phenomenally on migration um, to the detriment of the locals. But let's not go there in this this discussion. And uh, a woman called with a wonderful name of Marie de Letrevanche did probably the best paper in a book called um, Studies in Political Economy, edited by Ted Wheelwright. And what she showed was by going back through the history of migration from Australia right from the 1820s right through to the 1970s was always the previous wave of immigrants who are most resistant to the next wave of immigrants. Because they want to close, the, they want to close the door behind them. They feel, they, feel, they feel like they've got it good and they don't want anyone else to... But, I mean, that's, they're using the same argument, aren't they? That, that Well, they're going to they come are, along and are. take our jobs. Yeah, yeah. but but they also... It, it, it only becomes a, a major problem when you have periods of high unemployment. Now, uh, you know, we're talking about full employment these days. What we're doing is accepting the economists and the statisticians' definitions of what that is. But if you go back to, um, again, I've got to use Australia with my historical basis there, the unemployment rate when I finished up at high school in 1970 and went to university in 1971, the unemployment rate was 1.25%. And that really was full employment. If you wanted a job, you could get it. And you get a job at a level which paid you a, you know, a wage that meant you could live moderately comfortably. Uh, that was the definition of full employment. And we call the definition of full employment these days includes people working on zero contract hours and being paid minimum wages, which is so low they can't afford to get trains to go to work where they're, where they're doing the work in the first place. Mm. So um, the extent to which people have got genuine resentment of waves of migration coming in, um, which can't be waved away by saying, look, the unemployment rate's too low for you to have a reason to complain, I think the complainers have got it, not the not the statisticians. And yet, you know, if you look at the, uh, I understand what you're saying, if you look at the UK labour force, if you look at the participation rate, uh, it's it's not far short of 79%. So in, in other words, eight out of 10 people have a job of some sort. Now, your point is that that job of some sort might be just working a couple of hours a week rather than a full-time job. But it's yeah. but it's it's actually um, a, f- a few percentage points higher than it was in the 80s or 90s. So the, Yeah, but, but we, we now talk about them being the precariat rather than the proletariat. Right. You know, we know that we know that people have got very precarious links. They don't have the long service leave. They don't have the yeah. um, holiday pay, et cetera, et cetera. So their lives, and they're looking at the cost of getting into property, and then they are feeling genuinely, um, you know, unsure about what's what's going to happen when they cease being able to work. They won't be able to live either, right. live in a house either. So this this so it's cutting, it's cutting back migration going to solve that problem? Yeah. Um, no, not necessarily. What it will do, I mean, and, and this is, it comes back to the, t- to what do you do when you have a huge wave of population coming in, your population is growing rapidly? You've got to continue providing more schools, more roads, uh, more hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Not necessarily better schools, better roads, better hospitals. And this is what in economic jargon is called capital widening rather than capital deepening. Yeah. And in fact, you may be, you may do better in terms of progressing your society to actually be improving your technologies rather than extending them all the time at the same level. And, um, that, so that's, that's one issue that I concern myself with. Another is the extent to which our countries are already, um, more than, uh, overwhelming the, 
the capacity of the ecology to support the population that's there. Yeah. Third thing is, of course, why are people leaving? And quite frequently, it's because their ecology and their societies are being destroyed back at home as well. So it's not people are coming here looking for a better life. They're coming, they're getting away from having the lives destroyed back at home. So to, to focus on migration rather than the causes, most causes of migration, I think is where half the problem comes from. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that ecology argument, I think, w- would have been used maybe 10, 15 or 20 years ago, more than it's used today. And yet, actually, net migration into the UK, uh, I mean, Theresa May has uh, said, you know, she wants her government to reduce it from hundreds of thousands to tens of thousands. It's it's about 230,000. Uh, last year, it was 230,000. It was up quite a bit, on, uh, down a lot on the year before. But generally over the last 10 years or so it's been around that 200 230,000 mark it's not really fallen below 200,000 uh, actually since the late 1970s so uh, so if you look at that we've had continuous level of migration net migration coming into the UK that's been 200,000 or more um and uh, and yet you know in theory we're seeing more people employed so at that level you know ignoring the point about the quality of the jobs it's hard to say that migration is taking jobs away, and, and maybe that ecology argument is a better one to look at. It's like, uh, okay, we're managing to find jobs for everyone, but, uh, hey, the country's full, folks. We're, we're, we're going to ruin the environment. Well, the real thing is the planet is full, yeah, and, uh, and, and that's why we're seeing the level of ecological damage we're seeing in places like the Middle East and so on, which, and, and Africa, which is driving a lot of the migration in the first place. So to some extent, we have to take a global systemic view of this and say, why is there migration? And it's because the, if the impacts of us destroying the climate are regionally, regionally focused. We, have, we haven't seen it much in the UK so far, though the UK, if you look at what's called the, the human ecological footprint, I think is using up at three or four times the, uh, the capacity of uh, the UK to support a population. But uh, because we have that high level of wealth, you don't have the um, the same destruction of the environment. Um, whereas in places like Africa, of course, when the destruction has occurred, um, it's it, it it has already ruined the capacity to support life. Mm. So people are leaving because of conflict over the remaining resources, which has become quite militaristic and brutal, and uh, and and fear of death. And that's not exactly a good reason to. Um, why did you come to the UK? Because the choice was death. That would be, uh, yeah, that's, I can see that's sort of a compelling reason. Otherwise, you might choose somewhere where the weather's better. But if you are a migrant who comes to the UK from Africa, for example, then you, you're probably going to have a smaller family. You're going to, uh, you are going to use less resources on the planet. It's probably better for the planet as a whole, isn't it? No. In fact, we're looking, this is now looking at the... Um, um, human ecological footprint and saying what are the countries that have the most uh, extreme footprint, like uh, how many gigahectares per GHA, I think it stands for gigahectares, that's global hectares. Okay, right. so globally uniform, how many hectares per person are being used um, on, on that particular environment and which country do you think is actually at the top of the list? Uh, Australia. No, no, Luxembourg. All oh, right, okay, pretty small. We country. only doesn't even get a doesn't even get a bronze medal. We come in fourth. Right. Fifth is the United States, Canada, Kuwait. But you've either got extremely developed countries, and Luxembourg clearly qualifies there, or you've got oil producers taking up all the top positions. You don't start seeing. You've got the air conditioning on all day. 
until number 10, Trinidad and Tobago comes in there. Yeah. Um, so the, what's happened, the burden is actually highest in the more developed economies. Uh, what's actually happening is related a, a bit to um, Kate Raworth's concept of the donut, uh, that there's if you're inside the donut, you don't have enough to support life right now. If you're outside the donut, you're over you're overstressing the, the planet's capacity to cope with it. Most developed countries are outside the donut, but have such a level of mining, effectively mining of resources, that they um, can still provide what looks like a good and sustainable life for everybody who's there. But um, when you and in the developed country, you haven't got to the rim to begin with, and you're actually falling back towards the you know the the axis, and that's what drives people away. But predominantly, the burden is highest. Uh, in the developing countries, so that we're transfer actually accentuating that uh, that pressure on the environment. So, two hundred thousand into the UK versus you know tens of thousand that Theresa May uh, is is wanting. I mean, it, I, I mean, it's it's hard to talk about absolute figures, but who's right? I mean, it should should we be should we be looking at tens of thousands? It, it, a, a growth of tens of thousands seems to me it could be quite damaging to the economy. Um, I think we have to look at controlling population overall right. across the planet um, rather than relocating the, the growth of the population that's occurring right now. So my perspective, and this has got a, a strong ecological bent, and um, it, it, it's, a, it's a hell of a dilemma because you know, I'm looking at the list of countries by ecological footprint at Wikipedia right now, and the, the, the blackest regions are America followed by uh, Australia in terms of a, a global picture, right. the areas where the migration is coming from are the ones where the actual pressure is lower, right. but the sustainability of life is much lower there again. So what we've got is a, is a bizarre flow from the less ecologically pressurised to the more ecologically pressurised. Right, so that's, a, d- that's a double whammy. So people are going to come yeah. from those countries, they're going to consume more uh, resources, and they're going to live longer. Yeah, yeah. so, you know... We, the, only po- we the only positive is they will probably produce less offspring. That's one possibility, and that's what we all have to be doing. So I, I, I was just saying what's actually causing the migration, uh, and it's clearly you know, ecological breakdown is something we haven't had to talk about on a, on a global and systemic scale in the past. We are talking about it now. So if people are willing to hop in a boat and sail across the Mediterranean to get away from the situation they're in, uh, when, they're, when they're sailing on a boat that's got a now 90% chance of sinking, as we've seen uh, recently, uh, it shows what horrific situations they are they're leaving from. Yeah. But the solution is not to say let's have more migrants; it's to say what's causing it. And then the answer is we're ecologically stressing the planet. And what we're seeing now is the human impact of that ecological breakdown. So let's get back to the to, to the question. I mean, all very good points and obviously very important. But I mean, let's get back to the you know the original part of the discussion, which was the that relationship between employment. And, mm-hmm. and and migration. It seems like we've said, well, okay. I mean, perhaps there's a perhaps there's a tipping point, uh, and there will be certain sectors of the economy where perhaps wages are being are being suppressed. But it looks like at the top level, it's not a significant influence of uh, of of the level of, of employment. There's probably other factors which are which are more significant. And, no, I, and, and, and so two, 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 part, two parts of this question. Let me ask the second part as well, and then you can have a real good yeah. go at it. I mean, how much of it is also uh, self-regulated by the uh, by by the strength of a particular currency, so we have seen a weakness in the pound as a result of the uh, the, the Brexit decision, and perhaps also because of that Brexit decision, we've seen a you know a sharp fall in in migration to to the UK. So is there a bit of self regulation? If you've got a weaker currency, people are less interested in moving there. 
I don't think that's particularly a major factor, but I think in the first one, what's going on in work, because you're talking about workers rather than capitalists, you're talking people who spend 90 to 99 to 100% of their income. So their impact upon taking away from demand when they get a job or taking a job from somebody else is counteracted by the fact they spend most of what they earn anyway. Yeah. So the cash flow uh, is recuperated. Um, so you, but what you do get, and, and, and this is the, the classic that we've seen, uh, and the Tories and Australia's Tories as well are quite responsible here for this. Um, they're happy to whip up the, um, you know, the uh, dog whistle of racism to try to hang on to a redneck vote uh, to make sure they beat they beat their so-called socialist rivals. Uh, but at the same time, they're the ones who allow the large numbers in because they they see that as being to the benefit of their you know, their capitalist constituency and getting cheaper labour. Um, so. This class element, uh, which is ignored in, in general commentary, I think is a major reason why we have the level of X we see today. So that question is, that cheaper labour they're bringing in, is that cheaper labour doing jobs that just wouldn't be done so the growth wouldn't occur in the economy, or are they taking those jobs away from somebody else who lives in the country? Well, part of thing I, I think about my cleaner in this particular case, I've got a Russian cleaner who's paid the princely sum of £7 an hour mm. to clean my flat. I still don't know how she even gets to the flat let alone uh, survives on that sort of money for 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week. I, I've but been to your flight. I don't know how anyone would want to have the job cleaning it, to be honest with you, for right, all mate. the money in the uh, world. I know, I know. It's, 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 it's a life hazard. But at the other side, I'm paying the firm that hires her to do that more than I pay her. Mm. Yeah, and that's and that's part of the problem as well, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but then, then that would be a local company uh, that is pushing that money into into the UK economy. So the uh, well, let's hope so. It's probably got its profit center, profit center uh, you know, distributed to the Cayman Islands. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So this this brings me on to the next part of this discussion. Then it, it's I mean it's I mean, one that's often leveled by the UK, UKIPers and the like uh, about you know these people coming over, the migrants who are coming into the UK and uh, then sending their money back home. And the amount of money, uh, apparently, is about £11 billion per year that is sent back home to wherever back home is. Some of it, obviously, is Eastern Europe. Is that is that a problem? £11 billion sounds like a lot, but out of a £2 trillion economy, it's perhaps, you know, it's a, it's a leakage of half a percent. It's perhaps not well, it's a big issue. It's nothing compared to what's happening with profit being repatriated at the Cayman Islands by the wealthy yeah. people. I mean, this, this is, again, there's a huge amount of dog whistling in all this, and I'm not about to fall for it. So um, you see, like, in the, particularly in, in the Asian region, um, a lot of Filipinos working as maids in, uh, in, in Japan and in Singapore. So much so there's actually you know, songs about it, the Filipino maid syndrome. And they're doing it to make money because their own economies are underdeveloped back at home and they repatriate the money and it's a major income stream for people back in those societies. Uh, but the amount of money we're talking about is money out of wages versus money out of profits. I think I know which one's going to be larger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and the interesting thing as well is that, you know, the UKIPers are saying, well, you know, if we can stop this money going back, uh, you know, we can stop that by getting out of Europe. But uh, most of it's actually going back to Asia and Africa. It's uh, out of that nine billion, um, out of that eleven billion, nine billion is going to Asia and Africa. Only two billion is going to Europe. Most of that to Eastern Europe. But a small, a, a small issue. And, and the problem is, isn't it, that this whole discuss—it's difficult to have a serious discussion about uh, about migration because it has been taken over by uh, the popular press and popular sentiment and popular politicians. 
and it's a, it's the racist one. It's 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 divide the working class by getting them to fight against each other on the basis of the colour of their skin, rather than saying um, let's let's look at um, where our main opposition is. And I don't see it as capitalists. I see it as the financial sector. Yeah. So um, you know we focus these sort of huge amounts of debate on tiny amounts of money being repatriated by workers who consume most of their incomes anyway and only have a tiny proportion to send back, while the financiers are setting themselves up through what they call the paradise papers. Yeah, I'm amazed it wasn't called the parasite papers, um, but that that you know the the, the cash flows we're talking about that workers are sending back, migrant workers thing, but are, are trivial compared to the amount that domesticated capitalists are sending back by pretending to be domiciled on the Cayman Islands. So the relationship, getting back to the core question then, just to finish off, that relationship between can you have migrant, and this was the, the question that had been put to us via one of our listeners on Twitter uh, mm. to, to investigate, can you have uh, full employment and allow for, for migration? And it seems to be the answer is you, you almost seem to be following the neoclassic approach on this, that yes, you can because they are going to, they're going to, because they're going to spend, they're going to generate wealth in, in the country as well as earning it. Well, they, they 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 tend to be the workers going to spend most of their money domestically. Of course, there's a tiny amount repatriated, but most of the cash flows of the wage is going to go back into the domestic economy. So you are going to get that aggregate demand effect counteracting the um, taking labour and reducing wages effect um, coming out overall. But you know, and there's interesting research by some non-orthodox economists, friends of mine like uh, Engelbert Stockhammer, about what they call economies which have wage-led versus profit-led investment cycles. I think it's really what that finds when your whereabouts are you on the business cycles, whether you're going to be wage or profit-led. Um, when there's a, a boom going on, it'll be mainly investment that's driving it. When there's a slump, it'll be mainly workers spending. It gives you that cycle, but it's something which you know, the population growth rate. Mm. Um, that's the that's the key issue. But you're, me, not, you're, not, me, you're, not, you're not going to you're not gonna fix it, that. It, you're not going to f- fix that population growth rate by stopping migration coming into this country, though, because it's a no, small well, population growth rate will fall. But mm. what what I would rather be seeing is us investing in better technology, because um, you know, the, the, uh, the, particularly when you see politicians talking about baby bonuses, which of course we're both seen in <laughs> uh, the UK and in Australia. Yeah, what was, know, it, what was it Tony Abbott said? Have have one for your husband, one for your wife. And have one for the country. Uh, <laughs> that was the yeah, argument. Yeah. Have, have the Prince Philip and the measure. Um, I, um, I would, I would, I, we, we have to get to the stage where we're trying to achieve a decline in human population across the planet, not an increase. Mm. And that's my overall context for looking at both migration and and population growth. Right. Okay. Very good. Well, there's a discussion for another day. I'm not quite sure how you achieve that. Um, but uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a big one to chew on, isn't it? Uh, it is. Good to talk. Uh, we'll see you again soon. Okay, mate. Bye. And that is it, the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I am Phil Dobby. Thank you for staying with us, and uh, we'll catch you again very soon. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.